If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. This month, I've really been struggling with the heat to bring you a series of podcasts on the theme of hot and bothered. Last week, you heard the fiery George Galloway take on Rana Mitter and Stephen King to debate global politics. And the week before, we had Pierce Gorbin dismissing claims of man-made climate change. Well, my sunglasses beg to differ, Pierce. And so does our speaker for this week, Rupert Reed. Rupert is a philosopher and Green Party politician. And this week, he'll be taking us through his talk on the tyranny of evidence. Everyone takes for granted today that evidence is the best thing since uh, sliced bread. I mean, it's self-evident, isn't it? It's taken for granted now that we need to be evidence-based in everything that we do. This is the case in relation to science, but also supposedly in relation to politics and medicine and much more besides. Well, I want to put all of this into question. I think this is one of the most fundamental philosophical questions that we need to raise right now, just because it's become so self-evident that there couldn't be anything more wonderful than, uh, than evidence. I don't mean by saying that there's something wrong with our love affair with evidence, that we should just get rid of evidence or something crazy like that. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to prevent or raise a question about the overvaluation of evidence as a concept that I think characterises our time. So I'll seek to explain that. So part one, why we can't know the social world. This is the set of reasons I'm going to give you for my fundamental philosophical belief that when it comes to the social world and human world at least, we overvalue the concept of evidence. I'm going to take as an example financial crises. What ought one to do when one's seeking to uh, minimise the likelihood of an occurrence of a financial crisis in the future. The most obvious thing to, to do, the thing that everyone kind of takes for granted nowadays is, well, we ought to look at past financial crises, we ought to work on the basis of the evidence, see what went wrong then, and try to apply that to the next time. I think there's something uh, wrong with this. I'm working with uh, Nassim Taleb, the author of The Black Swan, who has famously suggested that there is an important sense in which financial crises are necessarily unpredictable, that they can't be known about in advance. And there's a limit to what we can learn from the way they've happened in the past as to what's going to happen in the future. So Taleb uses this phrase, black swans. And he says, any kind of real crisis, any event in the social world, in the human world that really shakes us up, that really devastates uh, us, is by definition going to be vanishingly rare. What such events there are, therefore, 
are only a tiny fraction of the events there could have been, let alone of the events there could be. This is a really important point. So when one looks at history, the first thing one has to think is not, oh, well, that's what happened in the, in the past, and therefore you know, there's lots to learn from that. Well, of course there's stuff to learn from it. But we ought to think of the past not as everything that there was, but as a tiny fraction of what there could have been. So I'm suggesting that you, that all of us, need to resist the ever-going pressure upon us to be evidence-based in everything that we do. Being evidence-based is, of course, far better than pure superstition or guesswork. But it is not necessarily better than being precautious. It is often worse, because if you are fixated on the evidence, you are liable to miss the vast array of things that could have happened that didn't. And you're liable to miss the even vaster array of things that could happen in the future that we have no evidence about. Crucially, absence of evidence of harm from, for example, some exotic financial product is not evidence of absence of potential harmfulness. If you have an exotic financial product, or again, if you have, say, um, a GM crop, uh, and you're told by its uh, advocates, by its proponents, by its creators, who stand to make money from it, of course, well, there's no evidence that this does any harm. Right? The crucial thing to note is, sure, but absence of evidence of harm is not evidence of absence of harm. But the fixation on being evidence-based, the call, where's the evidence, you know, show us the evidence that this does harm, can make this point invisible. Every time we use the absence of evidence of harm to suggest that things are just fine and dandy, we increase the risk of blowing up, we increase the risk of something going drastically wrong. So the single, single most important thing to learn from or about, for example, past financial crises is that we're not going to stop future financial crises merely be, by becoming experts about past financial crises. Rather, we need to learn how best to live in a world which we will never understand sufficiently in order to be able to control it. Part of what this turns out to mean is we need to act so as to create less uncertainty rather than more. So take an example, continuing the example of, of finance. Think of how a regulatory authority ought to act. Now, regulatory authorities, for example, the Prudential Regulation Authority in this country, the branch of the Bank of England responsible for managing the financial world, is continually told by the government and by everybody else nowadays, you need to be evidence-based in your work. And I'm suggesting that this is not the best way to go. A regulatory authority ought to be seeking to apply the precautionary principle to its sphere of influence. In order to do so, its staff need not claim nor even desire to know as much as those they are seeking to regulate about that sphere. They don't need to have as much evidence as those they are seeking to regulate. And this is a good thing, because it's very difficult for a regulatory authority to know as much as those they are seeking to regulate. It may be difficult for them to admit to themselves that it's very difficult, but they will be in a much better position once they do so, for they will no longer be trying to outcompete those who are likely to be far better resourced than they are. Right, so you have the Prudential Regulatory Authority sitting on one side of the table, Goldman Sachs or whoever it might be on the other. You've got a very asymmetric situation here. If the Prudential Regulatory Authority tries to proceed purely on the basis of the evidence which is available to all, they're always going to be outgamed by those they're seeking to regulate. But there's another way. There's another way forward, and that's by being precautionary. If the Regulatory Authority tries to get into a, an arms race with those they're seeking to regulate, they will lose. But they can do an end run around any such arms race and around the greater resources, the weaker ethics 
the lower aversion to risk, because of course the risk will eventually be picked up by the taxpayer if things go wrong, of those they are seeking to regulate. They can do an end run by going precautionary. By that is seeking to build down the risk that financial operators, Goldman Sachs, whoever it might be, are allowed to take. By acting not on the basis only of alleged evidence, but on the basis of something deeper and stronger and less arguable. Precaution for the sake of the common public good. But let me take a step back. Let me take a philosophical step back. Why can't you know? Why can't anyone know the social world and manage it? Why can't this kind of nirvana of being able to be completely evidence-based and on that basis being able to control, manage, predict everything be attained? So this has been the focus of my philosophical work for some time. There are two main reasons, and each of them is decisive. Together, they're doubly decisive. The first reason is this. The social world is made up of, it is constituted by understandings, by interpretations. The social world is made up of beings who are understandings. We don't find the social world as something there which is an object for us there to inspect. It is continually made and remade by us. It is done by us rather than being found by us. It therefore defies scientization. It's an illusion to think that the social world can be known as the physical world can be known, as it were, from the outside. It can only be known truly participatorily. And this is a, a profound limit to the extent to which it's possible for there to be any such thing as a social science or a human science. Even if this wasn't so, even if somehow the social world could be known scientifically, it still could not be controlled and managed because it is a moving target, because human beings respond to attempts to know them by seeking to make those attempts true or by seeking to make them false or in various other ways. Let me give you a few examples of that. So economists nowadays do experiments. Right? They do experiments. They do kind of mock-up versions of uh, economic scenarios to try to test out whether their theories apply to the real world. And guess what? It turns out, of course, that, that they don't. Um, unless there's one group of people, there's one group of people who, if you do experiments on them, put them in economic scenarios, it turns out the way economists predict. And that group of people is economic students. Now, why is that? Why do economic students obey the laws of economics and nobody else does? Well, I think the, the reason isn't hard to find. The reason economic students obey the laws of economics is because they think they're supposed to. They know them and they try to apply them. They try to live up to them. They try to be just as selfish as economics tells them they ought to be. Uh, and they succeed to a much greater extent than, uh, than other people. Right? It's actually quite a worrying um, fact. The greater the influence of economics, the more economics will become true of the world. If everybody is taught economics fully successfully, the world will become just as dismal a place as economics uh, tells us that it is. The laws of economics are, in this sense, as it were, a self-fulfilling prophecy. But there are just as many examples that point the opposite direction. One of those is Goodhart's Law, as it's sometimes called. What is this? So, some of you will recall or have been taught about what happened in this country in the 1980s. Monetarism was the economic theory which was, uh, which was applied. And what monetarism said was this, if you control the money supply, you'll be able to control the economy and be able to uh, make it uh, work in the kind of ways that people like Margaret Thatcher wanted it to work. There was a problem with monetarism, and it was this, that monetarism conceived of money as a kind of stuff, a kind of thing, a kind of object that could be found in the world just like um, oxygen or um, emeralds or what have you. 
But it turns out that money isn't anything like that. Right? Money is a sort of, if you will, functional category. Money is something that we do, again, rather than something that we find. What happened when people tried to apply monetarism in an economy was that people started using things that were not defined as the money supply as money. And the money supply had to be continually redefined and redefined and redefined. Goodhart's law basically says, if you define something as the money supply, then pretty soon it will cease to be the money supply. And the problem is that in advance, you can never be sure which of these things is going to happen or whether something else again is going to happen. And the final way of seeing that can be seen through uh, an example, of a fa really favorite example of mine, Louis Armstrong on jazz. So somebody was interviewing Louis Armstrong once and said, Mr. Armstrong, at the end of the interview, said, Mr. Armstrong, tell us, where is jazz going? Where is jazz going in the next few years? And Armstrong smiled and replied to him genially, if I knew that, I'd be there already. What, what is so great about this remark? Well, what Armstrong is basically saying is, there is an in principle limit to the extent that it is possible to, for example, forecast where jazz or any other human endeavor is going, right? Because if we were able to say where it was going, we could get there more quickly, and therefore there would be something else beyond that, which would be where it was going after that, but we couldn't know where that was by definition. Otherwise, again, we'd be getting there uh, more quickly, right? Human beings respond to attempts to know them in, way that in ways that make it impossible ever to fully know them. And there is an in-principle limit to the extent to which, to which we can know what our own future is going to be like. Because if we could know it fully, then it wouldn't be our future. There'd be something else beyond that that we'd be trying to reach. So these are profound, a couple of profound reasons why the project of seeking to know, explain, predict, control the social or human world fully is bound to fail. What the arguments that I've just given suggest are a set of powerful reasons underscoring the hints I've already offered in the first few minutes of my talk for why the idea of basing our understanding of any human endeavor around a concept like evidence, thinking that we can come to know about it and scientize it, model, etc., will always come to grief and why we therefore we must prioritize something else. So, again, the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle states that if an action or policy has a, excuse me, a suspected risk of causing severe harm to the public domain, the environment, the financial system, the action should not be taken, even in the absence of scientific near certainty about its safety, i.e. in the absence of evidence. And crucially, we don't want to be around if the very serious harm were to arise. I mean, we don't want to allow for, the, for that eventuality to have even the possibility of occurring, because by then it will be too late to regulate. By then it will be too late to take precautions. We need to be precautionary in advance, in advance of the evidence. But, I hear you crying, mustn't there be an evidential requirement to suggest at least a reasonable possibility of ruinous harm? Well, yes and no. You know, we don't have to be worried about scenarios like, you know, somebody says the great pumpkin is coming to get us or something. You know, there's a difference between sane worries and, and mad worries. But anything that is genuinely opaque to understanding, anything that is a genuine sane worry or risk, carries a risk of ruin. Remember that there were models prior to the financial crisis in 2007 that said, you know, nothing can ever possibly go wrong. We've got it all worked out in advance. Um, we've got all the bases are covered. 
you know, the rational expectations, it's all going to be fine. They were proven to be catastrophically wrong. The Fukushima disaster uh, was supposed to be the kind of thing that would only even be conceivably able to occur once in a million years, and then there were supposed to be systems that would deal with that once in a million year event. It's pretty clear that that was wrong. So, a heuristic, a suggestion for how we ought to orient our actions. Reduce or build down uncertainty by acting, by shaping the future, not just by, by knowing. And don't seek, to sh don't seek to shape the future in a way that creates further potential complexities or harms. Seek to shape it in a way that builds down risks, builds down things we don't understand. So here are examples of things we might do. Forbid, ban financial products that cannot be understood. Separate so-called casino banking from retail banking. Bring in a Tobin tax. Eliminate or reduce revolving doors. If you're thinking about a regulatory authority, right, the last thing you want is for somebody to be able to go from the regulatory authority to be able to work in Goldman Sachs, because then if the regulatory authority people do know anything, the Goldman Sachs people can now use that knowledge from the inside to try to destroy or undermine or get around the regulations. Paradoxically, don't overregulate, because you might think, right, well, the answer to this, in, in, given all these kind of problems, we've got to impose really tough regulations, regulate, regulate, regulate. Of course, there are, there's a place for regulation. But if you overcomplexify the level of regulation that you're bringing in, right, if you bring in some absolutely enormous tax code, like we currently have, for example, you're necessarily creating more potentiality for clashes, more potentiality for loopholes, more potentiality for there to be elements of what you are creating that you yourself don't understand or not, not fully in control of. So surprisingly, you need to keep things relatively simple, if you possibly can, if you're gonna build down the kind of uncertainties that we're seeking to limit. Act so, so, as, so as to reduce uncertainty. The precautionary principle should be invoked so that it doesn't need to be invoked so often in the future. And this is one of the beauties of thinking precautionarily. If you do it right, you won't need to do it so often in the future. You'll be gradually creating a world where there is less and less risk of it blowing up. You need to build down uncertainty. This can't be done merely by increasing knowledge. So to try to sum up, so again using our example of finance, what can't we learn from financial crises? We can't learn how to stop all future financial crises. If we try to fight the last war, if we try to say, okay, what went wrong was this before, so we'll guard against that by doing these specific things next time, it'll go wrong. That's hubris. That's the idea of being able to manage things completely. And we can't outcompete or know as well as they know themselves, those who are liable to trigger financial crises and so on through their actions. What can we do? We can try to be precautionary. We can follow rules or heuristics that will probabilify a non-ruinous cause course. They may also probabilify lower profits. They may probabilify a lower sense of ourselves. We won't be able to think of ourselves anymore as masters of the universe or as knowing everything that could possibly happen and being able to stop that. And what we can also learn from past financial crises, we need to be truly willing to give up on the claim and even the desire to be able to predict or manage, control the behavior of companies, financial markets, etc on the basis of an alleged evidence base. That claim or desire is what got us into the 2007 onward financial crisis, which by the way is, I think, not ended and could easily erupt again any time in the next few years. The social world is necessarily opaque to social scientific knowledge, precisely because it is constituted by human beings, by beings that are intrinsically understanders, and by beings that are intrinsically responsive to efforts to know them and cause trouble for those efforts. 
And so we need to be le less fixated on the evidence where the human world is concerned. We need instead to take up a precautionary stance. The stakes are very high. They are our very survival. And in fact, when one, well, as soon as one understands it in that way, one understands that even talking in terms of the stakes is part of the problem, right? This is not the kind of thing which it is appropriate to gamble with. And as long as we carry on seeking to be evidence-based in everything that we do, we're engaged in a massive gamble. We need to take an alternative route. We need to take an ethical route which stops gambling with our future. That means that we need to be fundamentally precautionary. Being evidence-based is, ironically, being a foolish and unethical gambler. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, which was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. So what do you think? Is the reliance on evidence misguiding our financial institutions and our environmental policy? Let us know by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag philosophy for our times. <laughs>